There's always a FinReg Angle, the podcast providing you with the latest news and commentary on financial regulation. Brought to you by Global Custodian. Hello and welcome to the second episode of season two of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually, as always, by a cast of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy, Virginia O'Shea, and Joe Parsons. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Hello there. Hello there. Wow. So when we were doing predictions for 2021, nobody, nobody saw this coming. For those of you who've been living under a rock for the past couple of weeks, uh, not only did we have hedge funds squaring off with Reddit users in a a market battle over GameStop shares, but the frequently labelled unsexy side of finance, the plumbing, the boring stuff, I'm saying the last bit in inverted quotation marks. Um, the post-trade side of markets, settlement and clearing, has become one of the most hotly discussed topics among retail traders, market participants who are actually armed with knowledge when talking about it, and just the whole Twitter sphere and social media space in general. Um, we saw Robin Hood try to divert attention away from the fact it's upset its merry band of Gen Zs and millennials by blaming them. real-time settlement on some of the issues that's happened over the past couple of weeks. And I think I speak for all of us when I say it's been pretty fun to follow. Would you guys agree? Yeah, no, it's been a, I mean, this is my Woodstock, right? FinReg and post-trade stuff. It doesn't get better than this. (laughs) I say yes and no. It depends on who you end up talking to. (laughs) I I feel like I can sense the frustration building with Sean and Virginia, especially people that (laughs) clued up about this, listening to people that aren't going to have their quick takes. Um, but before I come to you both on it, let's let's let that boil up a little bit more. Joe, why? Yeah, I saw you wrote a blog about it, which is which is great um, to, to kind of get a good overview on it. Why is Reddit user six eight seven four two three angry at the DTCC and the the notion of T plus two settlement? Well, obviously, it's it's, it's to do to some deep state conspiracy to. <laughs> <laughs> prevent people from no, I'm, I'm completely joking. No, it's, it's 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 a what they don't understand is that is that that pretty much DTs this sort of T plus two settlement sort of cycle pretty much saved Robin Hood's bacon really, and and here they are on Twitter pretty much denouncing them in, entirely, um, which it, it, it to me it makes no sense. Uh, in the US, it, it requires. Sort of two days, um, you know, after the trade to happen for for it to settle, and you know that is a that is a key part of of of, of market structure um, to safeguard, you know, to ensure payment is is done and, and all the sort of different banks and brokers involved, uh, you know, cash is 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 flowed very easily. Um, but you know, in this scenario um, where GameStop price was, you know. Began to jump, you know, dramatically, and there was huge, huge volatility. Um, Robin Hood and, and, and other brokers, you know, they had to put money with the DTCC, who's like that main sort of hub in the US stock market. Um, you know, during the, uh, and to back those trades during that time that it takes for them to settle, um, which means they have to pop a lot of collateral and they, and they have to ensure that they have to raise large amounts of money to ensure that they can, you know, backstop against any potential losses, which some of these huge, huge hedge funds and, and other participants were, were, were uh, witnessing. But, you know, if a t- if an instantaneous settlement cycle was in place, um, they've had to, you know, front backload all those trades. Um, and, you know, it probably could have wiped out Robinhood and, and probably countless others to 
this was what sort of baffled probably us us uh, us experts and uh, and others alike is is that what they're calling for <laughs> is would um, pretty much remove you know a core part of market structure and and would have wiped them out. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess. Yeah, Virginia, come to you. We were always talking about frustration about various parts of, of market processes and um, you know things that take a long time to change, clunky systems, etc. But the people that are complaining about this, obviously, you know, do you feel like they have a, a complete lack of understanding of, of, of how it all works? Well, I think it's it's deflection, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's an easy thing to deflect onto something that's relatively uh, poorly understood by the markets. That most people do not really understand how the plumbing works. Um, certainly in the retail brokerage and trading community, I'm sure no one has a clue as to how it all works. So it's easy to deflect um, onto something that's quite archaic sounding, you know. Um, and, and it's just a, an easy get out of jail free card to some extent. Whereas, I mean, I, I've honestly, I've put my head on the desk at the moment, but I've been writing about this since the early 2000s. I mean, I think I wrote my first feature on T plus zero settlement in 2003. Um, <laughs> and I've been writing analyst reports for the last decade and a bit on the topic. Um, all of which have involved me talking to retail brokers and institutional brokers about it, and particularly in the US, about how painful it would be to move to a T plus one settlement cycle, let alone a T plus zero one. <laughs> so I, it just, it seems to me that he, well, A, I'm sure he has no idea what goes on in his operations team, right? Um, or any of the people that he he has in his middle and back office, uh, and and the ones that are dealing with apex clearing, right? This is this is the issue here. I think there's a massive disconnect between bits of a a broker's um, internal architecture. There's massive lack of understanding in the market about why we can't just be you know moving to an instantation instantaneous settlement system which would require pre-funding of everything. It would get rid of multilateral netting, which um, essentially prevents us from having to send vast, you know, flows of cash back and forth across the system, which in in itself would be a massive risk. Um, It would introduce risk to the system. And, and you know, I don't know how many times I've written about this topic, but every time the SEC knows that T plus zero settlement isn't very practical. Um, I I certainly I've spoken to, you know, (laughs) they've they've quoted my research in the past on the topic um, during speeches and different things that they've done. So it's it's not exactly... um, it's not poorly understood by the FinRed community, I think, uh, although, you know, on the on the government side, maybe they, they don't seem to know what they're talking about at the moment, because I, I hear lots of random um, assertions being made by, uh, by, by various government members in the US. But uh, certainly, I think it's, it's a, it's a big topic. It's a big thing. It's a big change. You'd have to, you'd have to change the entire industry to get us to move to real-time settlement. You'd have to upgrade all of those systems that are batch systems. You'd have to change the way that you manage liquidity. You'd have to change the way you manage collateral. You'd probably have to change the way you manage capital. I mean, it's not its not nearly as simple as it sounds. <laughs> well, you, you sound very relaxed and cool about it all, but it hasn't affected you at all. <laughs> Sean, um, I feel like when this all happened, it was one of those... Wow, huge scandal going on. What does Sean think about this? You know, I wanted to log on to see uh, <laughs> see your reaction. So, you know, how many people were coming to you for that that instant take of uh, what does it mean to a Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a big, it was an interesting week last week when, you know, the height of the volatility and no one knew what was going on. And then as the started, the dust started to settle and people started to sort of clue on on this T plus two issue. I'm using air quotes because it's obviously not an issue, but I, I think it's been an interesting time. And I think like the T plus two thing or the push for T plus zero the thing is that intuitively it sounds like it makes sense if you don't know how the system works, right? So who wouldn't want instantaneous settlement? But I think as Virginia pointed out, like there's all sorts of real challenges with that. And then I think there are sort of another layer of issues as Joe was sort of alluding to, which is specific to Robin Hood's model that would have made T plus two or T plus zero, you know, a catastrophe for their business because Robin Hood encourages its underlying investors to trade on margin so they would in a t plus zero world they'd have to you know fund all the trading activity which would have been impossible if they couldn't make their collateral option uh, obligation so i just think it's really it's one of those things that gets picked up because it sounds archaic but as we all know there's a a ton of um a ton of work that's gone into looking at this and that's why we are where we are and then the other thing is we know there are markets you know saudi arabia and russia have both moved from t plus zero to t plus two in the last few years to be more in sync with the world capital markets. And then the markets, you know, China's the most notable market that's T plus zero. And I think a lot of market participants outside of the greater, you know, greater China area really struggle with the T plus zero market. So it's not even like we don't have practical examples of where it's really difficult. And if you also do that in the large world, the world's largest capital market, it would be incredibly messy. But I think it will, I think it's just one of those things, sort of in you know, the fog of war, so in the heat of battle, everyone's just looking for um, things to latch onto, and for whatever reason, um, this got the attention. Which isn't to say that there are certainly room areas for improvement, right? And I think we would all admit that. And it's, um, but it's just it's this isn't the area that really needs the most focus, I think. And surely, probably the one silver lining that all this then is that we don't need blockchain for 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 instance instant settlement. Surely, that, that must be the silver lining out of this. Oh, I'm, I'm, the blockchain cakes are going to come back, right? There's no, you can't, it's unescapable. And honestly, amongst friends here, this is probably the closest use case you have for a, a real blockchain process. Not that I think it would work, but yeah, I mean, I think um, what I would love to see come out of this, especially in the US, where one of the big issues is cash takes days to clear, is if, you know, you're focused on, like, if maybe we can improve, get to same day cash movement the way we do in Europe. I mean, that would dramatically improve the system. And for retail brokers like um, Robinhood, it would be great because you could have people open their accounts and the cash would move immediately and they wouldn't have to flow people for two days for the cash to move over. So there are certainly areas that can be looked at. A big part of this is the shows the, the power of the masses, didn't it? Um, and Sean, I saw you use the analogy of uh, one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses. Have I got that right? But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it is, I don't know, is this something we could see again? You know, movement, you know, it's tough to take on Wall Street on your own, as some people put it, but, uh, you know, if you get a big group together, it can really kind of mess with the markets. Is it, is it a bit of a, a lesson and a wake-up call in any way? It means what, what the SEC is going to do. I mean, surely they're going to look into it and, and there's going to be some kind of investigation about, you know, whether these people manipulate the markets and then, if so, is there there might be an even deeper dive into the, the, the market structure sort of side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was using the analogy of the sort of the, the duck-sized horse or the horse-sized ducks, um, it was really around 
sort of retail participation is going to happen in the marketplace any way you look at it. And there are essentially two ways. One is this sort of direct through retail brokerage model. And the other way is intermediated by funds. And so regulators have really been looking at the last five years. You know, we've all heard that do index funds, ETFs create uh, systemic risk. And I think what we've seen here is that the alternative to that is direct participation and uh, marketplace, which can obviously cause volatility. But I think we should also take a step back. And I think this has been a little lost in the discourse because it was sort of, it was kind of fun and wild to see like essentially worthless stocks get driven up to like the most valuable companies in the world. But this, I mean, I don't think this was like, this didn't like royal the markets generally. So if you ignore this pocket where, you know, AMC and GameStop and the uh, couple others, the broader market was largely flat, right? So this wasn't like a systemic event. It's just a really weird thing that happened in a weird corner that everyone paid attention to. So I think that's the other thing. The sense of perspective would be welcome as you know we entered the congressional hearings and the SEC looks at it to understand that this, while interesting, was essentially a bunch of people had a trading idea, a bunch of more people had jumped on it, and then some people made money and some people lost money. And a retail brokerage in the middle had their capital uh, regulatory capital stressed to near breaking point. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, th- th- there was this sort of we've beaten the hedge funds kind of dialogue going on. Well, you, you just look at the profitability of the other hedge funds. I mean, there's always someone better the opposite way. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know how anyone in the retail market thinks that they're going to take on the, the entirety of capital markets. It's just not going to happen, is it? It's not the way that Wall Street works or any, you know, globally, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, also, you don't know how much of that's so obviously there was this whole Reddit angle to it and the message boards were really, you know, full of hyperbolic talk as message boards tend to be versus what people were actually trading. And then, but I do think you make a great point about the fact that like a hedge fund was this basically the subject of the short squeeze. I think that really clouded a lot of sort of the initial reaction to the event because policymakers hate hedge funds, right? So you had an instant enemy which meant you like in a simple narrative, the the good guy becomes the sort of the retail brokerage that's struggling to meet its capital requirements. So I think that I think that's part of the, the challenge is like this narrative of people versus hedge funds really clouded what a lot of people thought the issues were at first. Well, I'd, I'd love for uh, you know the popularity of our podcast to take off on a on a Reddit um, thing. Maybe we can uh, get some crowdfunding going for there's always a, a FinRag angle. You know, we'll just we'll just tell them the hedge funds are against us. And uh, <laughs> I guess it gives people some. Uh, yeah, everyone always used to think of the hedge funds as the bad guys, but probably not really actually know how to explain it. Whereas at least now, the average person can possibly uh, explain the. Uh, notion of uh, shorting a stock and what it means um so is there anything anything to watch going forward or do you feel like this is a, a, a kind of closed case now a bit of a storm in a teacup and it's it's over now all i was going to say is i mean there'll be discussions about investor protection investor education and all these things that we need to be careful about and mindful of i'm sure that i mean the new administration is all about that right and, and protecting the the man on the street so no doubt there's going to be a lot of I don't know, soul searching being done by the new SEC about how to protect um, those that are jumping on a bandwagon and not quite understanding where the bandwagon's heading or what why it's in, in a bandwagon in the first place. <laughs> so I imagine that'll probably be a, a big, big issue. And, and God knows, maybe this will mean that we'll get some regulatory backing for a move to T plus one, because I don't actually think... A, a T plus zero is just a, a, a non-starter. I don't, we're not going to go that far. It's not. It's going to cost too much. It'd be too difficult to do. 
um, look at look at Australia. That's a relatively small market comparatively, and how much how many problems they're having with the distributed ledger system, for goodness sake, uh, and the delays there. So. When we think about it from that perspective, it, it would be good to get a regulatory mandate for T plus one because I don't think the markets will ever do it on their own. Um, we had to get, you know, a, a regulatory mandate in Europe that you know CSDR to move to T plus two, um, and, and obviously DTCC afterwards did move to T plus two in the US. Um, and somebody was arguing with me that the US went first, <laughs> which was particularly annoying, I must admit. Yeah. Um, and they were also arguing with me that, uh, that, that everywhere in the world was on T plus zero, which was uh, quite, quite, that's why I created a map to show that it's most of it's on T plus two. <laughs> um, but, but certainly I think that if, if we do get a regulatory mandate for T plus one, that'll be benefit for the market in terms of reducing settlement risk. So uh, that's, that's, that can only be good in my eyes. Yeah, I think I probably agree. I, mean, I do think it's amazing that, you know, American commentators don't realize the U.S. was dragged kicking and screaming to T plus two, um, essentially because Europe made the switch. But I think, I mean, I think everyone would welcome, the, if, you know, regulatory backing for a move to T plus one. Now, obviously, that would have international implications, too, because I think the commission or the EU would have to consider a CSDR two to sort of bring the European markets in line. Because I, I think there's a generally accepted um Belief that it'd be good to ha- good to have most of your major capital markets aligned. Um, I think the other element you picked up on was absolutely spot on. I think there will be investor protection conversations because um, if you think about it, uh, some of the there was a lot of criticism of the derivatives rule that was passed by the SEC towards the end of last year, um, which essentially normalized levered and inverse ETFs, and there was a lot of complaints that you know there wasn't enough pre-sale disclosure and ordinary investors shouldn't be able to buy these without sort of um, some additional information. And so the same argument could be extended to maybe the bar needs to be raised around margin trading and options trading. Not, uh, and I don't think people would outright ban it, ban it, but it maybe it should be a little easier than, you know, a one click process. So I think that's just sort of investor protection stuff we'll see. And I think the final one that I think we probably will see some discussion about uh brokerage capital requirements in general. And here, I think it'll be important for regulators to disentangle what were potential issues with one group versus the sector um, and if capital requirements are different. Um, but I think those are probably the three outcomes. I think there will be a lot of noise in the next couple of weeks in the run-up to the hearings in the US. Um, but I do think it probably dies away a little after that. Now, Joe, I literally just seen that you sent me an email just before we, we hopped on this recording that DTCC have actually responded to some of these claims and debates about uh, the settlement times. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically last year, DTCC launched this project called Project Iron, which was all about looking into T plus zero settlement and sort of technologies that will be used um, to, to facilitate this, mostly through uh, DLT and blockchain. And um, pretty much the whole sort of public debate that's that's happened about T plus zero and, and and with what's happened with Robin Hood has kind of sort of forced DCCC to come out to respond to you know these claims about how how much beneficial the um, a, 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 an instant assessment cycle would be. Yeah, and pretty much they've come back and they've said that that the market and the the, the sort of the banking and the asset management industry are not adequately aligned um, to move to an instantaneous um, settlement cycle. And, and, and that's largely due to um, 
a lot of requirements around having to pre-fund, um, having to predict financing, do real-time reconciliation, and, and sort of really upend all their workflows to meet the sort of the real-time trade processing lifecycle. So what is interesting is that they they sort of kind of align with, with some of the things that sort of Sean and Virginia have mentioned that um, it is ready to support a T plus one and even like a T, T plus a half, they've said. Um, but it does seem to be at the moment that T plus zero is, is uh, very much out of mind. I mean, the reason why we ended up with T plus two was because, I mean, there was a lot of debate because we'd moved down from T plus five to T plus three. And then <laughs> there was, God, this is this long history of writing about this stuff. <laughs> um, the reason we settled on T plus two as, as an industry was because it wouldn't involve killing all those batch systems that everybody has running overnight. So, uh, which is what, you know, because we've got so many legacy mainframes and, and uh, most actually even the risk systems aren't, you know, in real time. They're not supporting stuff in real time. You know, I know that's unbelievable, but it's true. So um, that's that's one of the things that, you know, we, we have to take into consideration here is it's not just the market infrastructure that would have to make the investments by any stretch of the imagination. All of those retail brokers really don't want to spend on plumbing. All of the you know clearing brokers don't necessarily want to be spending on things that aren't adding to their bottom lines. And that's why we just haven't moved. That's why I'm saying we need a regulatory mandate, um, because DTCC alone hasn't been able to do it yet, uh, unfortunately. It's been tough for them to get convince anyone that it's worth the effort. Yeah, 100%. I mean, honestly, if we can't, out of this kerfuffle and this noise, if we can't uh, get the SEC to give that mandate to get the T plus one, I'm not sure we'll ever get that push. I mean, I, like this seems to be, if I were DTCC, I'd be using this as a, a way to sort of push that T plus one and quietly bury T plus zero, which seems to be what they're, what they're doing. Great stuff. Well, it feels like nothing else has been going on in the last uh, the couple of weeks. It's been quite busy, I mean, that's for sure. Um, a few uh, uh, things with Brexit and everything like that. Joe, was there any other kind of news uh, on, the, on the GC uh, FinReg angle that you wanted to, to bring up? Yeah, I mean, probably what went under the radar a little bit was that the uh, consultation for CSDR and, and, the, and the, the, the buy-in regime, that, that closed. This week, and it really sort of, we've now sort of kicked off the one one year sort of countdown to to go live of of buy-ins and and um, the settlement discipline regime. So, I, I mean that uh, that in itself is is quite a big sort of landmark. And then um, we reported earlier this week that sort of, I think firms have pretty much got just a couple of weeks time uh, weeks to to finalise those sort of vent those key vendor relationships if they if they decide to to outsource. Their um their CSDR compliance, so that's that's the kind of big thing really. And I don't think we'll probably we'll, we'll wait to see sort of the the results of that consultation and that review uh, in the CSDR review. I think in the second or third quarter. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, around that time. There was an interesting FCA paper out as well. <laughs> I thought I'd mention, but it highlighted it's just looking at UK specific firms in terms of this is this is tied into believe me, it's tied into what we were just talking about. But it was highlighting how many legacy technologies people have um, within UK firms. And it's sort of uh, showing that there was project massive project risk in, in terms of replacing legacy tech. And they, they put out some statistics in terms of how many projects failed in 2019. I think they said 3.8%, which seems quite low to me, actually, completely failed in terms of, of uh, replacement projects. 
That's really low. I would, I would have thought that was much higher, honestly. I don't, well, nobody wants to tell the regulator the well, yeah. do they? So. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose you, like, if you have complete failures of transformation, you keep that to yourself and call them victory somehow. Exactly. Yeah, the only other thing, a couple of things came out this week, um, which definitely got lost in the noise, is that the, the SEC published a consultation um, about potential money market fund reform, which I think we talked about a couple of times in our previous episodes that we all saw coming. Um, and because of the sort of the need to bail out money market funds again uh, during the, the COVID volatility. And the other one is just this morning, actually, the, the ESMA and the other ESAs published or sent their level two guidance on the ESG disclosures to the commission for review, which is only notable because the ESG disclosures go live on the 10th of March and those level two measures aren't going to be finalized by then. But at least it gives firms trying to prepare for the the level one implementation, some guideposts on what ESMA's thinking around those disclosures. Things sneaking in, like you say, under the radar a bit. But uh, cool. Well, it's, it's only uh, February, and we've got a lot of uh, goings on in the market. Um, any Bitcoin ETFs applications we need to catch up on? There's one out there, right? Like I, I, I believe there is one in front of the SEC at the moment. Um, like it was filed like a, about a month ago. <laughs> of course there is there's always one <laughs> there's always one yeah come on <laughs> i mean crypto isn't it that's 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 hit a new high isn't it i think ethereum is, is that that sort of, sort of huge market surge i don't know if that was, was that also backed by sort of some of the reddit traders as well so well, they what? went from silver to, to ethereum is it, is it a doge coin etf by any chance oh. was it filed by elon musk <laughs> he seems to be pushing it pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't quote, that was all created just because of a joke, really, wasn't it? It was, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then that was, yeah. Amazing. Amazing to see what drives the markets these days. Memes. <laughs> Goddamn millennials. The era of the Trump tweet is over, so now memes and, and Reddit threads are uh, underlying the market, which is, um, wow, real uh, turn of the page. But, um, well, look, thanks, thanks to you all for all your thoughts on this today. It was uh, a fun topic to follow better one to talk about on this podcast and um yeah i hope we've cleared uh, a lot of things up for a lot of people so um virginia uh i know you've uh, <laughs> quoted a few of your reports back from in 2000 um today you know <laughs> when speaking about the back back in my day kind of uh, moment <laughs> but the reports that you're doing now where can everyone find uh, your work and uh, what are you up to I was writing about 2000. It wasn't in 2000. Let me be clear oh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been 84 years since I last wrote. <laughs> That's terrifying. No, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on reg reporting at the moment. Uh, and in 2021, uh, not 2012. So, uh, and you can find some of my research and, and you can contact me on www.fintechfirebrand.com. Oh, and Sean, where can we find your work? As always, please go to City Securities Services Insights at cityvelocity.com backslash insights. Brilliant. Joe, any updates from Global Custodian? Uh, no, no, none, 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 none for this week. Literally none. Well, what about, I mean, you could plug your uh, your blog on, on this very topic or uh, some of the other stories around this week. <laughs> yeah, for all, all the latest insights of security services and post-trade world, go to gc.com. There we go. 
whether you're a Reddit user or a Capital Market participant, we welcome yeah. free traffic to our, our website. Well, thanks to everyone again for, for listening today and, and Sean and Ginny and Joe for your comments. Um, do give us any feedback and remember to review the podcast wherever you're listening to. But for now, that's all. Thank you. You were listening to There's Always a Finreg Angle podcast from Global Custodian. Stream on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or catch up wherever you get your podcasts from.